Does the channel provide value? Focus on the foundation. I am a travel vlogger. It's always about communication. Build those partnerships. What are the problems that you solve for your clients? Just being ahead on the technological side of things. Leading an organization. You not only want to survive, but you want to thrive. They said it wouldn't last, and they said that you can't drive profitable and incremental revenue through the affiliate channel. But here we are, 20 years later, and the affiliate channel is alive and kicking and generating profitable revenue for thousands of retailers across the globe. Hi, I am Jamie Birch, your host of the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast, where we talk to some of the industry's best and brightest about their careers, about leadership, and about how to drive profitable revenue through the affiliate channel. Hey everyone, thank you for joining me on the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. My name is Jamie Birch. I am your host and CEO of JEB Commerce, your affiliate marketing agency and your award-winning affiliate marketing agency. Today, we're gonna do something a little different. I'm not gonna tell you about resources we have. You already know what those are. We'll include those in the next episode. Today, I am talking with a very special guest, Michelle Shelton. She is the CEO and principal of Shelton Holdings and michelleshelton.com. Michelle and her organization are DEI consultants, diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the things that I haven't heard talk about in our industry specifically, digital marketing and affiliate marketing, is the importance of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Now, it is an acronym that you have probably heard thrown around the last two years uh, quite a bit. Maybe you don't know what it's like. You don't know why it's important from a moral uh, perspective or an economic perspective. Uh, But I asked Michelle, a new friend of mine that I have really come to enjoy every single conversation we have uh, and bring so much to... uh, uh, to, to my life and, and this conversation, I asked her to come and talk about what is DEI, why is it important, and what should we do about it? So that's what we're going to talk about today. So I'm excited to bring something completely different uh, to the Profitable Performance Marketing Conversation, something that I haven't really heard uh, speak about or talked about in our industry that I think, you know what, we can do a lot better at. And so, well, I'm just going to let this conversation speak for itself. We're going to have a lot of resources in the show notes, uh, as well as at the end of the podcast. So, Michelle, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for allowing me to create this space for us to have this conversation. And without further ado, please enjoy, rewind, listen to uh, again and share with your friends this conversation that I have with Michelle Shelton. All right, Michelle Shelton, thank you for joining me on the Profitable Performance Marketing Podcast. Today, we're talking about something completely different, but I am so excited uh, to chat with you today. How are you? I'm well, Jamie. Thank you for asking, and I'm delighted to be here. I certainly appreciate you extending the invitation, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Yeah, and so we're not talking about performance marketing today. We are talking about something that is impacting all uh, marketing, all business, all employment. Uh, we're talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion. Uh, so why don't you introduce yourself and, and give us your origin story? You know, Where did you start? Uh, how did you get into this? And how did you become a business owner in this field? 
Sure. I am CEO of Michelle Shelton, LLC. We are a diversity, equity, and inclusion management consulting firm that is based in Louisville, Kentucky. And we primarily work with our clients to confront and conquer the isms and other degrading beliefs and practices that ultimately uh, hinder our ability to be able to respect and value the common humanity that we share, as well as reach the bottom line that is important to not only organizations, but those who uh, comprise their workforces. So we do that within the workforce and beyond. So we do work with communities who are looking for ways to be able to come together. And we work across all three sectors, so public, private, and nonprofit, to be able to help folks to strengthen their commitment and, and more importantly, importantly, their uh, action towards advancing diversity, equity, and inclusion. I actually started in the work as a, a civil rights enforcement officer for our local city government. I am a former investigator, if you will, of workplace discrimination and sexual harassment complaints. And I worked for a partner agency to the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. And what that means is as a local agency, the Human Relations Commission, we served as a neutral fact finder and did a lot of work share with the EEOC by investigating uh, a lot of the charges that came from large corporations within Jefferson County, the county wherein the commission was based. And I, through that work, had an opportunity to go in and again, as a neutral fact finder, work with the leadership within the organization, as well as the person who had brought in the complaint to really get to the heart of what had happened with that particular incident. And through that, I uh, not only conducted investigations, but also often led mediations that took place between the charging party and the organization that was involved. Uh, and, and also uh, helped the uh, both parties come to settlements around these agreements. But one of the things that I noticed when I was doing the work is there were a lot of challenges within organizations around people just having an opportunity to really see and hear and understand one another across our differences. So I unexpectedly received an invitation, if you will, to join the leadership team of the administration of Kentucky's 61st governor, Stephen Bashir, and I was invited up to our state's capital to oversee the oh, Office wow. for Diversity and Equality within our personnel cabinet. So in that role, I had an opportunity to oversee equal employment opportunity compliance, as well as affirmative action and diversity and inclusion initiatives for our entire state government enterprise that at the time had about 33,000 employees. And what I loved about that work is, again, it, it provided an opportunity for us to be able to look at what was happening in the workplace from a compliance perspective and make sure that folks were compliant. But having been on the other side of the aisle, as an enforcement officer, I was able to support our state government with becoming a an employer who provided a uh, an inclusive and and certainly respectful workplace for all of our employees. After leaving government, I made the decision that this is the work that I wanted to be a part of. You know, diversity and inclusion with now an equity lens as well is about really being able to see people for who they are within the workplace and make sure that they feel honored and respected and valued for the contributions that they bring. It's work that is near and dear to my heart because I have been in positions so where I have not felt so valued and appreciated for the contributions that I bring. So to be able to do this work consistently and now to own a firm where we're all about bringing people together over differences and making sure that we right, if you will, some of the systemic wrongs that have taken place and gotten us to this point is something that I absolutely feel uh, 
feel blessed and honored to be a part of. And uh, certainly to be able to be on this journey with our team and our clients is, is more than I could have ever asked for. That's awesome. And, and that's with so much going on in the last two years. Uh, this is why I wanted to have you on the podcast. And I think uh, uh, the person we have in common that introduced us knew uh, we would hit it off and we've become fast friends. I enjoy every conversation you know we have. Um, is that what you did you go to college for this or, or you just did you stumble into that government role and that that got you started? Well, you know, I actually went to college with uh, my first intention was to become a uh, an attorney. <laughs> so I majored in political science. I went to the University of Louisville. Go Cards! I have to make sure I shout out my alma mater. And uh, was a part of the political science program there. Had every intention of going on to law school, uh, becoming a practicing attorney, either in family or civil law. And I started my work in city government with no intention at all whatsoever of becoming a government official, just kind of looking for a job, if you will, once college was over until I decided what I wanted to do. But I actually became a single mom while I was in college and uh, had a little one to take care of, a life, if you will, that was totally in my hands. So I had to quickly make a decision about what I was going to do. And continue, continuing school just wasn't going to be an option for me at the time. So uh, I decided to go ahead and pursue my career as an enforcement officer. And again, just through the work that I was doing there and uh, around connecting with the community and bringing folks in, if you will, to partner with government in various capacities. Uh, noticed that someone recognized the work that I was doing and I had that opportunity to go to the state level and work. So that's kind of how I got into it. And uh, as I was working across all three areas of EEO, affirmative action and diversity, when it was time for me to come out and I decided to start my own firm, I decided I wanted to focus on diversity, equity and inclusion and uh, make that our primary focus, but also having a background in human resources and compliance and all of that, it absolutely supports the work that we do. So we're able to go in and support our clients um, from an HR compliance perspective, a DEI, as well as overall organizational development. So that definitely informs, my background definitely informs uh, how we approach the work. And it's a, a great benefit to our clients. Yeah, I, I can't imagine. So now with all that's going on, DEI has been uh, a term that I've heard uh, thrown out a lot. Uh, it's something that we're working on at JEV. I've shared some of the, the initiatives with you that, that we've worked on and, and uh, that we're working on. But for our audience, what, what exactly is DEI? Is it DEI, D-E-N-I? Uh, and tell me why. And this is, I know, a very big question. Uh, and I'll give you as much time as you need to answer. But why is DEI important? What is it? Why is it important? Well, you know, I tell you, Jamie, it's important because I mentioned to you earlier that we uh, focus on helping our clients to confront and conquer, if you will, those things that get in the place uh, that tend to threaten our common humanity and the bottom line. And I think what, what many employers, unfortunately, over the years have missed is the fact that, yes, there is an organizational bottom line that those who are in business are always trying to reach. But there's a second bottom line that is often overlooked or not necessarily given as much credit. And, and that's the bottom line of the people who work for you. 
right? We all have goals and objectives that we're trying to reach for our personal lives as well as our professional lives. And it's critical that employers take that into consideration. So when we talk about DEI, whether it's pronounced, whether it's the acronym is DEI, DE and I, there are some folks who uh, talk about belonging. There are some folks who also add in uh, things that speak specifically to culture change, culture transformation, and what have you. The three main components are diversity, equity, and inclusion. And to give you a quick history lesson, it came about because, of course, we had folks who were engaged in the civil rights movement back in 1955 when they started the Montgomery bus boycott. And we know it took an entire year before Montgomery really came around and really started having the conversations that those who were in the movement were trying to get them to have, um, specific to how Black people were being treated. In Montgomery. And, you know, thankfully, Dr. King and his leadership, the SCLC and all of those who were involved and engaged in that movement, they stuck to it to make sure that for an entire year, there was an economic impact that mandated, if you will, that commanded the attention of the leaders in that city to begin to pay attention to the needs and the issues affecting the Black community and, and to come up with responses that would be appropriate and acceptable. Um, but even with all of that work, you know, I don't have to take you through the whole lesson around civil rights, but, uh, you know, there were several years before Title VII of the Civil Rights Act if you will, came into existence. And the Civil Rights Act wasn't signed by President Johnson until 1964. So when that finally came into existence, and of course, you know, we had protections to make sure that Black people had access, if you will, to employment opportunities. But ultimately, just getting them in the door or creating laws that said it's important for Black people to have access wasn't enough. So fast forward to the 70s. We have this concept of diversity that comes up and, and what that concept initially was about was really being able to understand the, the unique needs, if you will, the unique needs and the unique experience of black people so that when they were brought into the workplace, they not only had access, but that they had opportunities to really be engaged in the culture and really benefit, if you will, from the workplace and all that it had to offer in the same way as their white counterparts. And as a result of that particular work, we started to notice that there were all of these differences in terms of how we experience, how we communicate, the access that we have, disparities that have arisen within communities as a result of what has often been talked about here lately, especially systemic racism and systemic oppression that the Black community has continuously been subjected to. So we move from this idea of just recognizing differences, which is what diversity calls us to do, to really understand what it means to be inclusive. And inclus inclusion in and of itself is about making sure that folks are engaged, that they are brought to the table to be a part of decision making, that they are brought to the table to be able to express their perspective and that the proper credence is given to understanding those experiences. And then we take it a step further now here lately, especially with the, uh, the issues that we faced as a result of the social justice, racial justice movements, COVID and the disparities that have been exposed by that as a result of everything we went through in 2020, this idea, this focus on equity. And equity says, not only have you invited me in, not only do I have access, not only have you invited me in and invited me to the table to be able to share my perspective, to share my story truthfully and honestly and, and give you some insight into my experience. But once you have all of that, 
I still need to be respected and valued as much as anyone else in the workplace, especially white people, and to be able to benefit from things like compensation, advancement opportunities. You know, what we find when we really do a deep dive into many organizations is, yes, you have black people and other people of color who work for your organization, but they're usually underpaid in the same way that women had to fight for equal pay. Many communities of color, Black in particular, are still fighting for equal pay, for equal work, right? So all of these components together really speak to the need, if you will, for organizations to have some honest conversations around how are we treating people in the workplace and are we still perpetuating uh, an atmosphere, if you will, of, of making white supreme and everyone else an other or less than by the way that we engage them and we compensate them for the contributions that they make within our organizations. And, you know, uh, Verne Myers, a wonderful uh, DE&I practitioner, she, she has a wonderful analogy that she uses where she says diversity is being invited to the party, inclusion is being invited to dance. Well, I would submit, and then there are some folks who have added that equity is having a say with the playlist, you know, being able to make contributions about songs that matter to you. When I think of equity for me and it personally, I think equity goes much farther than that. Equity, when you look at it holistically, equity says that I have transportation to get to the dance. I have the proper attire to be able to show up and feel confident in who I am and that I've had access to resources that gave me the meal that I needed that particular day to provide the nutrients for my body to be able to function well once I get to that dance floor. Okay, so equity expands the entire conversation into really looking at how are people in the black community and other communities of color really being treated in this country when we think about what it means to be the land of the free, the home of the brave, the land of opportunity, because history has shown us that traditionally this has been the land of opportunity for white folks, not so much when it comes to black, indigenous and other communities of color. Well, thank you for that that breakdown. Uh, and I I often think of, or what I have learned is, as a business owner, I have a responsibility to make sure that uh, those opportunities that I have are available to to everyone. But then, not just that, when they get in, it's creating an environment that that is inclusive. Like the work isn't done. I, I had thought, well, I'll just make sure communities of color uh, have the job openings. Uh, but then working with our local NAACP uh, uh, really kind of realized, well, that may be one thing, but they may not want to come here because it may not be a safe place. So is that really that inclusion part is also as far as the, the business is making it a place where it's a safe place and equitable for people of color? Absolutely. And, and making it a safe place is, is one of those areas of inclusivity that you cannot uh, draw conclusions about without engaging the people who are directly impacted by it. You know, I think that uh, I, I want to be clear in indicating that, you know, the assumption is not that every white person is not concerned about equal opportunity in the workplace. It's not that. It's what we have here because of systemic racism and the oppression that uh, the Black community has experienced, again, by a system that was intentionally put in place, starting with slavery, to ensure that Black people would, would be a part of a permanent underclass in this country. What we have is a country where white, again, is supreme. So as a white person, you don't have to think about race on a daily basis. Usually when you go into places, you are a part of the majority, and at least you are for now. That will be changing in uh, 2044. Um, but 
right now you go into places and you are a majority. Everything is pretty much structured to see you as socially acceptable. And you don't have to have the experience of being an other, if you will. So when we have uh, folks mm-hmm. come together and they say, well, you know, I have made the decision that this is going to be an inclusive work environment, but we look at your leadership team and everyone on your leadership team is white. The question becomes, how inclusive can you be without having the right perspective to help you know where the blind spots are, to help you know where the differences are, where the challenges are? And that's what we're running into with a lot of organizations here. You know, many have diversity and inclusion statements that are a part of, uh, they may highlight diversity as a value. They may have a statement that they put out, especially after the George Floyd uh, murder last year. We had a number of companies that were coming out in support of Black Lives Matter and saying, okay, we are going to be an inclusive organization and make sure that we celebrate diversity. Well, the shock value comes when, uh, when companies really sit down and they have someone to clearly articulate for them what that means. Because it's about a lot more than putting out statements. It's about a lot more than just having employee resource mm-hmm. groups. It's about so much more than just making sure that you know Black communities get access to job postings. It's about making sure that you have a culture in place that can receive this, these black employees who you decide to hire within your organization. And again, when they get there, they feel like it's a place that is safe for them, not just physically, but psychologically. It's a place where they will be valued for who they are and they have an opportunity to show up as individuals who can tell and share their personal stories and share their experiences to the extent that they feel comfortable with leaders and colleagues who do not suffer from anti-Black perspectives, who do not suffer from um, any type of of supremacist ideas that want to continue to perpetuate what we culturally experience socially and and, and politically in this country. So that in and of itself requires organizations to kind of do a shakedown, if you will, and really assess where they are um, from the company's perspective, and then also what type of leadership they have in place. Do they have leaders in place who are capable of handling conversations where folks are able to bring to the forefront experiences that are not the traditional white experience and people who actually have objection and who who are ready to have conversations about how the company can improve. Because what typically happens, I can just say this speaking from personal experience, as a Black woman in the workplace, I have suffered consequences from speaking up and speaking out about mistreatment or being overlooked or things that have happened to me as a result of not just my Blackness, but also my womanness, right? Being a Black black woman, I kind of get it, you know, both, both hits. So women, yeah. We've had we've seen a lot of activity around women and their experience in the workplace with sexual harassment, with the Times Up and the Me Too movements, right? So Black women experience that as well as the challenges that are faced when we are dealing with folks who uh, are operating from this anti-Black perspective. So it can be quite a bit um, that is involved in in what it means to really be an inclusive organization. And one other thing I want to point out about this too, Jamie, you know, we've talked quite a bit about the experience of Black folks, okay? Um, But when we look at diversity, equity, and inclusion, because this always comes up, someone says, well, diversity is about more than just race, (laughs) right? You're absolutely right. It's about more than just race. But I take time to share about the history of it, because what's happened is the reason 
we had this entire industry start back in the 70s has now been overshadowed by a number of other attributes and characteristics that deserve certainly our attention. When we think about the LGBTQ plus community and their experience, when we think about um, our, our Jewish brothers and sisters and the experience that they're having because of their religious beliefs and Muslims, our Asian Americans, when we think about folks who are coming from other communities that have been traditionally labeled as other, yes, we absolutely need to address the issues and the challenges that those communities are facing. But I can tell you that, you know, you've heard before the original sin in this country was slavery. And Black folks, no matter where you are, even when you're a part of the intersection of some of those other communities that I, that I mentioned, your Blackness continues to relegate you to the absolute bottom of the pile every time. So our focus here with our firm, you know, we have a, a Decade for Diversity initiative that we have launched, and that is specifically for the purposes of focusing people around the issue of race when it comes to talking about diversity. Because when I'm out leading a session or a retreat, folks are fine talking about age, gender, generation, religion, everything is okay. But when the subject of race comes up, that's when people shy away. When we get to the place to where we can have yeah. courageous conversations and really address this country's yeah. issues with racism, we'll be able to take care of everything else. But we have got to deal with this issue. And that is our firm belief. You know, what you mentioned, I was looking through uh, Facebook memories today and something came up from today of last year. And it was a picture that I shared, someone else created that says, we say Black lives matter, not because we know that all lives don't matter, but because right now Black lives are threatened. And so that topic of this is why we're talking about this, because it is a huge issue right now. And so for 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 some of our listeners, many, many, many of them, um, they have not experienced uh, me, for instance, I, I'm, I'm a white guy. I my parents are college educated. I'm college educated. I've you know, I, I've I've had every advantage uh, that I can I can think of. And I'm successful partly because of that. But many don't have an experience outside of that, especially what it's like for a person of color, a woman of color in the workplace. So they don't have an understanding of what that's different, especially right now. I, the, what I hear a lot in the community around me is, you know, we've had a black president. Uh, we, we're not racist. I'm not racist. So, you know, everything's equal now, but it's, it's really not. So there's, a, I think, a lack of understanding of what it really is like for a person of color and, and the weight that they have to carry that's different than uh, their white counterparts. Can you tell me and paint a picture of what, what it is like for uh, a black woman in, in the workplace and, and, and anywhere? So our listeners can see like this is still a huge issue right now for, for, for people that we should be caring about and, and helping. Absolutely. And, you know, thank you for asking the question. I will, before I answer you, however, take a moment. I just want to take a beat here and clarify that, you know, while I am an expert in this field and I can speak to a lot, I want to make sure that people don't assume that I am speaking for everyone who is Black. What I want to share with you and what I can share with you is my experience and certainly some of the experiences that I've heard about. But I do think that it's important that even when we're talking about uh, the Black community or other communities, 
communities of color that we don't make the assumption that there is one person who speaks for everyone because that is just simply not the case. Uh, I was speaking with a group of CEOs just this morning before we got onto the call. And, you know, one of the things that I was telling them is, you know, it's, it's, it's easy, if you will, for, for white folks to kind of lump everyone together. For example, this term BIPOC. Right. That is the latest term that that we've been Uh categorized into that makes it easy for people to be able to talk about communities of color. And, and, And it's a trendy thing. Some people think it's a hip thing. But I caution you and your listeners to think about the fact that, again, what that is, is it's 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 putting all of us into this singular perspective, if you will, because it's, again, convenient for white people to do that. I encourage all of our clients to take the time to break down black indigenous Asian American, Jewish Americans, Muslim Americans, you know, whatever LGBTQIA plus, right, to take the time to acknowledge and call out individual communities, because it's a matter of respect. It's a matter of acknowledgement that we don't all have exactly the same experience. The thing that unites and, and that unites us is the the horrific <laughs> exposure that we have to continually dealing with systemic racism and the other oppression that and other oppressive uh, experiences that we have in this country that is what unites us but our experiences you know are unique and certainly worth whenever there is an opportunity folks listening to them so I, I will say that another group that I think is important to point out here if you will grant me this this personal privilege if you will is the experience of American descendants of slaves it's it's and, and you may have heard it referred to as ados if you haven't I want to point that out. And case in point, why this is important, because again, speaking to the unique experiences of communities of color, it's important to understand those who are American descendants of slaves are just that. Folks who are descendants of slaves who were brought to this country to be utilized as free labor and, and be property to white landowners. Okay, that is a very different experience from folks who have immigrated to this country um, from other places, other communities, and who happen to just be called or considered black because they have a darker skin tone. You know, one of the things that I uh, recall happening during the uh, most recent presidential inauguration is there was a, a, a misstep by Senator Klobuchar and, you know, I have the utmost respect for her. I'm sure it wasn't intentional, but this is a learning opportunity for for uh, many white individuals as she referred to Vice President Kamala Harris as the first African-American president. Well, Kamala Harris is, is Vice President Kamala Harris is not an African-American, if you will. Her, her heritage is uh, East mm-hmm. Asian. And she is also Jamaican and she has been very open about that. And because of the color of her skin, she has been classified as a black person. So you can be African and American and black, but not necessarily are all black people African Americans. So these are learning opportunities. Again, doesn't mean that there was any malicious intent by the senator. um, But again, there's a need to clarify that and understand that with that comes very unique experiences. My family were slaves. I am a descendant of American slaves. So I have a very different experience as a black woman in this country than Vice President Kamala Harris. Okay. So that those are things that need to be pointed out. So in response to your question, what is it like? I can tell you that, you know, I, I draw from a quote from, um, Lena Waithe, who is a producer and actress, and she says that being black in this country is beautiful, but being black in this country is also traumatic. 
We are a beautiful people that have a, 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 a beautiful history and legacy in spite of the oppression that we have experienced in this country. We have an amazing resilience, an amazing forgiveness capacity, if you will, to forgive. But we are fighters, we are strong, and we continue to, to push forward in this struggle no matter what we deal with even today. For that, I am I am grateful for who I am, my heritage, and where I come from. I am also often saddened, however, by the experiences that I have on a day-to-day basis where I am reminded that I am an other, uh, considered to be a permanent underclass by folks that I engage and encounter in the community, whether it's me shopping at the grocery store and being followed by someone who is concerned that I'm going to shoplift because I've come in in sweats and tennis shoes with my hair pulled back in a ponytail. I can say that depending upon where I am in town and what I am doing, the way I look, the way I present myself makes a difference. But I also know that there are some of my brothers and sisters who no matter how dressed up they might look externally, the fact that they are black, those especially with darker skin, they are subjected to constant, um, constant suspect, if you will, being considered a constant suspect in some form of ill behavior by folks who, again, operate from this place of anti-blackness. And why is that? Because the reality is that many folk have been conditioned to see black as problematic. They've been conditioned to automatically assume that when you see black people, there is going to be some level, some extent of uh, criminal activity involved, or there's some kind of threat and some kind of danger that you're going to be exposed to. There are a lot of white folks in particular who have been conditioned and trained and programmed to believe that the the challenges that, that we face in the black community around uh, the the racial wealth gap and, you know, certainly educational advancement, housing, if you will, fair, affordable and clean, safe housing. You know, any of those things where, where we are at the bottom of the scale in terms of receiving, the assumption unfairly and inappropriately is that it's somehow because of our laziness or our inability to be able to keep up or our lack of wanting to have and be and do better. And those same mindsets that are programmed into people from birth on, they carry into the workplace. So when you go to work, as a black person, you know, we have stats out all over the place with respect to how human resources engages uh, applicants of color, if you will. If you have a black sounding name, you're 50% more likely to have your application tossed into the trash without even having an opportunity to interview. If you go in for an interview and you have a, wow. a, a white candidate who has the same credentials wow. as you, you know, typically that person will more than likely get the job over you. SHRM, the Society for Human Resource Management uh, has been doing a lot of research around equity issues in the workplace and racism. And, you know, right now we've got about 49% of Black human resource professionals across the country who say, yes, racism is a problem in the workplace, but only 13% of human resource professionals who are white think it's a problem. So when we have such a huge gap in just clarity and understanding around what the issues are, how can we trust that these folks are going to be intentional about trying to clear up these challenges, right? When we think about the field of human resources in and of itself, it's largely dominated by white women. White women who also, when affirmative action came about, a lot of people said, well, you all have affirmative action. Why isn't that enough? Well, the reality is affirmative action benefited white females much more than it did any person of color. 
So African Americans did not benefit from affirmative action in the way that many people thought, just as just as this is not a post-racial society because President Obama was elected into office, right? So it's important for us to be clear and not just settle for misconceptions or assumptions that people make because of limited understanding. We've got to be intentional about diving in and really paying, uh, you know, giving giving these these issues and these these concerns, their due diligence when it comes to evaluation and analysis. I, I think about, you know, for me as, as a Black woman, the label that we often receive in the workplace is that of being combative, that of being confrontational, uh, insubordinate, not team players, when we utilize our intellect to be able to uh, express challenges or, or question anything that has been done. I've worked for organizations where the expectation was for me as a Black woman to stay in my place. And some of them were bold enough to even tell me that. I had a supervisor once who said to me not to ask too many questions because I would make the white men uncomfortable. Yet I'm in a leadership position where the expectation is that I do conduct inquiry to be able to understand how the organization got to the place that it was in. And then when you push back, And you say, well, hang on a second, you know, this is what I'm here for. Or you ask questions, you know, I've been in situations where I've had folks tell me, well, you need to learn how to play the game. And let me say that this isn't always coming from white people. This sometimes comes from black people who are just as afraid that if you come in and you're an outspoken black person because they have figured out how to stay in the good graces of white leaders, they don't want you to come in and disrupt this. So, you know, this is something that that happens frequently within organizations. And again, my story is just one of so very many that that need to really be heard and really need to be told so that folks understand what's happening in workplaces. But when you are a part of the minority, when you have been mislabeled, your credibility has been challenged because you have raised these questions, then that can ultimately affect your ability to be able to continue in your career, seek advancement opportunities, and so on and so forth. So what happens is many people don't say anything. They suffer in silence or they leave the organization. And when that is the experience that any one individual is having in an organization, it's incumbent upon leaders to say, we need to deal with this. We need to address this because each of our companies makes promises to folks before they come on board. When they're looking at our organizational pages and they're reading that mission, vision, and values because they wanna apply for that job, that next opportunity, they read through everything that we promise they will experience as a part of being uh, you know, with our, with our organization, right? But when folks get there and that experience is not in alignment with what we've promised, then that becomes a question of our organizational integrity as well as our leadership integrity, right? So it's critical to make sure that there are opportunities in place for folks who are not having an experience that is in alignment with the promises that we make for them to be able to come forward and acknowledge that with their leaders in a way that is safe and supportive and that does not ultimately end up in them suffering retribution for bringing it to anyone's attention. I am blown away by that one example of your supervisor telling you to stop asking questions because it makes the white people uncomfortable. And I I know you and I have had conversations that is a small example of what you, you know, just you have had to face. 
uh, let alone what so many others have had to face. I, I, I'm a loss for words every time I hear stories for like that. Um, we could fill hours, I'm sure, of, of others that you have on the top of your head. What is that like to carry, to bear that weight, and to know that there's a group of individuals that don't have to do that? I don't carry that weight. I'm never a suspect. I If I get angry, it's just because I'm angry. That's it. I, there's nothing else behind that. So what is that like? As a, what, What's that like? Um, to have to, to carry that around? Oh, it, it's overwhelming. I mean, you know, I, I can think of, um, you know, the ultimately the frustration that can come with that. Because I, I think that what, what folks miss is when someone chooses to come to your organization and, and, and bring their talent, you know, often as employers, we see ourselves as, as, as granting, if you will, wishes by inviting people to, to come on board with our organizations and, and to have jobs. But uh, you know we, we forget that people choose our workforce. Every member of our workforce, they made a decision. They chose to come to our company. They chose to bring all of their gifts and their talents to our company. And, and we've got a responsibility to honor and respect that because they could have gone somewhere else. So when you come into an organization, and you know especially if you're, you're someone who has left another organization because of discrimination or um, you know being made to feel less than or overlooked, and and then you get to another organization and you've waited who knows how long. You know, I think about a conversation that my husband was having with some of his buddies, and they were talking about this issue in a in a church group, and folks were saying, well, if it doesn't work out for me at work, I'll just go get another job. That's not always the case for Black folks. And, and that's the reality of this country that we live in. You know, there could be a considerable amount of time that we have to wait in between jobs. And my goodness, if you've got an employer who uh, misrepresents you and accuses you of being combative or challenging or what have you because you asked questions or because you were trying to get clarity around what was expected of you, then, you know, certainly... Uh, there are limitations on what can be said, but somehow or another, folks always seem to find a way, if you will, to continue to put up those roadblocks. So that's something that needs to be taken into consideration in terms of how we engage folks. So when we talk about what is it like, what is it like to have that experience? It's, it's, it's extremely frustrating because immediately you have to go to the place of questioning, okay, how much further do I want to take this? How much more do I want to push this when I know that what is happening to me is not fair? And it, it can begin to affect you, you know, physically, emotionally, and uh, create a level of, of, of trauma and anxiety that no one should have to endure in the workplace where you spend the majority of your time trying to, to acquire the means if you will, to be able to live the kind of life that you want and to provide for your family. But this is the trauma. This is the, um, you know, the, the unfortunate and, and just infuriating experiences that many Black people have in the workplace. And, and to, to have to constantly weigh the op you know, what your options are and ultimately the consequences thereof can make for an extremely challenging experience and it can affect your health. It can affect the uh, extent to which you're able to feel a part of the team. It certainly it, it affects, you know, how you see yourself, your self-esteem. But we don't always have the option, if you will, of walking away from a job. So that's another thing, you know, for employers to keep in mind, those who are leading companies is the impact that you have on your employees. You know, often when someone has had an experience like that, I would say if you've got a person who was 
from the jump, you know, fully engaged and happy to be there. If it's a person of color or a woman and you notice that they've started pulling back and, and maybe they're not as engaged as they used to be, that's the time to start asking questions to find out is everything going in the way that they expected it to. You know, in, in my situation, I actually reached out to HR and uh, sought the help, the assistance of human resources in uh, the situations that I was dealing with. And unfortunately, that made it worse because what happened is uh, human resources, um, they were, again, mostly white female, had the perspective that if I was coming to them and, and, and raising concerns that it somehow must be my fault, it somehow must be a, an issue that I'm just overlooking. Um, white females and human resources are extremely protective of the organizations. They're extremely um, management is, is us and the rest of you all are them. And we're going to err on the side of management every time. And what happened in my situation is I went to human resources, talked to a white female, let her know what I was dealing with. She had reached out to the manager who was responsible for the experience that I was having, and they just let him loose. They cut him loose on me. So he then started bombarding me with emails and making accusations against me of things that I had not done on the team. But they allowed him to start what I call documenting. And I recognize that because of my background as an EEO enforcement officer. He started documenting incidents that were not true to be able to create a file against me in case I decided to take my concerns outside of the organization. So to attack my credibility, to attack, you know, the contributions to undermine. I was in the middle of a huge project at the time um, that some of these human resources folk and this manager who I later found out from some other colleagues once they left the company, they were being very intentional about trying to sabotage my work in order to make me look incompetent so that wow. they could position me to be terminated. Okay. Now you think about this for someone who might be a single mom, may be the only provider in her household with three or four children who are totally dependent on her being the breadwinner and being able to provide for everyone. Imagine what type of stress and strain it would put on someone and you know to have to deal with that. So again, we've got a, a, a perspective in many of these workplaces that says it's okay to attack and degrade and discredit Black people who try to speak up and speak out about injustices that they are experiencing in these workplaces. And, and it's just, it's not okay. And one of the things that led me to start this company was to make sure that there was someone out here who understands, who's been there, who has survived it, who is willing to have the difficult conversations and point out things that need to be said on behalf of the folks who unfortunately are suffering in silence and who are terrified to bring to the forefront. My work is working with leaders to help you to understand that your culture in your organization is not what shows up on your mission, vision, and values. Your culture in your organization is that which is being created and reinforced by the leaders that you have there at every level of the organization. And if you really want to know what's going on, we've got to get out of our corner offices. We have to stop only taking the word 
of those folks that we've put into leadership. And we need to start having conversations with our employees, make ourselves visible and get out and start talking to everyone from from the, the contractors that we have taking care of the landscaping to the folks that we've got working security and on the doors to our administrative assistance at every level of the organization. We have to make sure that we take responsibility for connecting with our folks and they know that we are genuinely there to make sure that they are having the experience to based on the promises that we made. Wow. You know, and I, as you were talking, I was thinking, how can I, what's the analogy between things I've experienced and what you're talking about? And I don't have any. Uh, they would be horrible attempts to try and say, you know, even to my to our listeners of, you know, imagine it's kind of like this. There's nothing I have that's kind of like that. Um, which makes it, you know, one of the things you talked about before was representation and leadership, which makes that so important. And maybe that's a, a, a step that I missed in our DEI was looking at, at that, a representation, because I was listening to something yesterday or reading, I can't remember which, but there was an article and it was about, it was from uh, the perspective of a, a professional woman who's, who's saying, this is why it's so important because if I'm having an issue and I go to another woman in leadership to talk to her about it, she's already has that uh, the the foundation of understanding where I'm coming from that a male counterpart would not have because he's not a woman. And the same would be for uh, for people of color and, and all those uh, all the other groups, you know, as on an individual basis. It's hard for me. I, I can't even there's a there's a gap so far for me to under to under to fully understand that experience. And that's why that representation is so important. Right. So that if if we have uh, uh, a black employee that can only come talk to white people, white men, there's a gap in there that is is, you know, it's just so difficult for me to as a white man to, uh, you know, to, to bridge. Right. And that's why the representation is so important. The representation absolutely is important, Jamie. I mean, you've got it there, but you know, I would, I would venture to say that first off, what's most important as leaders is that they have a, a, a deep love and respect for humanity first and foremost. And, you know, I think that it's important for us as leaders to make sure that we're in the place that we need to be as individuals before we can get to that place to where we can really appreciate and respect all of humanity. Um, because again, you know, I mentioned to you earlier a situation where we had a black executive at one of the companies that I was in who was absolutely committed to perpetuating the same culture, the same system, the same environment that was that relegated black folks to the bottom rung. So it's not always just having more black people there, but you need to have black folk there who are um, respectful and, and understanding of what it means to really value humanity. You need to have all of your leaders there understanding what it means to really value humanity and who can show compassion and empathy to other people while also bringing that unique experience, if you will. OK, you know, I think about uh, Anita Hill and mm -hmm. Clarence Thomas, you know, when she talked about um, the experience that she had being sexually harassed and, and, and the way there were so many people during her hearings who just kind of opened up and unleashed on her and, and, and victimized, you know, and talked about her. They vilified the victim 
And, and that is another challenge that we have in this country with respect to being able to really understand the importance and the critical, the critical way that we need to approach this work. We have a tendency to, to if we can't relate to it, we don't want to believe it. If it's not something that we've seen, if it's not something that we've heard, mm -hmm. we haven't experienced it, we have to question it. And sometimes we just need to know that it is what the person says. And, you know, there's nothing more frustrating than someone other than you trying to tell you what your experience is like. And of course, Anita Hill, bless her heart, bless her heart. She endured everything that came her way. But of course, when the Me Too movement rolled out, we saw that there was a lot more of everything that she said happening across this country in workplaces everywhere. But she had to be the one who stood out there and spoke and speak up about it in a high profile situation and deal with everything that came her way. And people weren't just attacking her because she was a woman. They were attacking her because she was a black woman and she was speaking out against another black man. But the reality is that, you know, at the end of the day, we have to have leaders in place who understand that humanity is at stake here. Our ability to be able to really have a wonderful experience is to be able to connect with one another from that common place of understanding that we are all much more alike than we are different. But our differences do not have to be a threat. They can actually be a benefit to us if we allow ourselves an opportunity to take a moment to learn about them and not allow any of us to continually be uh, brainwashed into thinking the way the system has been set up to program us. You know, when we talk about anti-racism, Anti-racism is all about recognizing that we are all being subject to a, a system that benefits from the continued perpetuation of racism, sexism, you know, all of these things, right? So we have to, while we might not have been responsible for creating this system in the beginning, we are all here living as a part of it. And those who benefit most from the system will continue to benefit as long as we waste time pointing fingers at and not being willing to show the proper compassion and respect towards one another. If they can keep us fighting here at the levels where it, where it, it keeps us distracted from the real issues, then that's what's going to continue to happen. This system is going to continue to prevail. I like to operate from a place of love. I like to operate from a place of love and compassion and be a bridge that brings people together so that we recognize our collective strength. And that collective strength, again, is something that is, is, is there as a result of our common humanity that we share. And when we are able to connect across that and we activate that, we can turn things around in this world. We really can. I believe that. And that is why I am so committed to doing this work. There are folks who would say, well, Michelle, you know, that's just too optimistic. It's not real. We've got other challenges that are here. But, you know, that's what helps me to get up every day and continue to do this work, continue to stay in this struggle is because I can meet Jamie Birch, who I never knew prior to us being connected by that mutual colleague. And you and I can sit and we can have a conversation and now we can see ourselves as friends who are working to make a positive difference in this world. That never would have happened if I wasn't open to the possibility of getting to know you and allowing you to share your story with me and vice versa. And we were able to find those things that we had in common. We just need to have more of that happen. And I'm so glad, you know, we did meet, really enjoy our friendship. Um, you know, one of the, you said lead with love. 
it's probably one of the things I've been most disappointed in the last two years, especially as a uh, uh, evangelical Christian watching my community lead with fear and uh, protectionism instead of love. Here's a group of brothers and sisters uh, that are hurting and we're saying, no, they're not. Ignoring that, you know, telling them what their experience is. Uh, and for those listeners, I know we're talking a lot about white and black and we're saying that a lot. And if you're listening to this and, and you're like me, you know, uh, a white guy somewhere around the country and you're thinking, why are we talking about this? Notice that and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Michelle, but we get the privilege of never having to talk about it. I, I can walk away and not have this conversation. I don't have to think about that at all. It does not unless I invite it. It does not come into my day. I don't have to, but it's not like that for everyone. And I think that's, like you said, leading with love. Empathy is, is a huge part uh, of the step, right? To, to just see people for who they are, what experiences they have. We don't have to do that. That's a, that's a big difference. Am, am I wrong in that? No, I think you're absolutely right. And I think the other thing, too, is that when we talk about uh, the racial wealth gap, when we talk about economic challenges, educational challenges, you know, I often hear from uh, white folks that I'm in, engaged in talking with, well, I'm not privileged. You know, when we talk about white privilege, this topic comes up and I hear people say, I'm not privileged. I had to work hard for everything that I've got. There's some folks out there who are still living paycheck to paycheck. And, and the reality is that even in that space, even with those struggles, there is a level of privilege that is extended to you because of your whiteness that is absolutely not available to me because of my blackness and the anti-black sentiment, if you will, that exists, that runs deep in this country. And sometimes it's, it's so embedded that folks aren't even aware that it exists. But if you're a white person who, if you're walking down the street and you see a black man coming towards you, you clutch your purse or you cross over to the other side of the street, you've got some anti-black sentiment in you. If you're someone who, when you see a group of black teenagers hanging out on a street corner, your assumption is that they're lazy and they're up to no good and plotting a crime. You've got some anti-Black challenges in you. If you see a Black person in the workplace and they come to you and they say, uh, you know, they, they say something or they ask you a question and you're taken aback and the assumption is, well, they're angry or confrontational, you've got some anti-Black sentiment in you. If you are afraid to go to the part of town that is traditionally labeled the black area of town because the assumption that you have is if you go, you're going to be robbed or murdered. You have some anti-black sentiment in you if you don't want your kids to go to school with black people because you're afraid that your kids are somehow going to be negatively influenced or they're going to start sagging their pants or they're going to start speaking that language, if you will. You have anti-black sentiment in you. Is it because you are intentional and trying to be a racist? Not necessarily, but you have subscribed to those things that this system creates with regard to its programming and its conditioning. And, you know, it, when we think of racist, you know, I do a lot of work with groups on uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility. And uh, this is something that we talk about. When people think of racist, there's this binary perspective that folks have that, you know, there are good people and there are bad people and racists are the bad people. When you think of white supremacists, folks automatically uh, equate white supremacy to the KKK or other, or other, other white nationalist organizations. That's not necessarily the case. 
good people can have racist perspectives and, and have racist tendencies. They may not be intentionally racist, but they can, in fact, have those. And it's critical to understand what racism is. It's critical to understand how you can perpetuate a system of racism and not even realize you're doing it. So, Jamie, when you say, well, you know, white people don't have to get up and think about this. White people don't have to think about being white. You know, that's where it starts. I have a colleague that I do uh, conversations in black and white with, and we talk about black and white conversations. And that's one of the things that that uh, he shared with me. He said, Michelle, you know, people don't white people don't have to think about being white and white people don't have to consistently think about what kind of power they might have in comparison to other groups. The white experience is just that it just is right and you're able to kind of move through your day and your life with whether you realize it or not in ease of not having to be concerned about the same issues that that the black community faces and other communities of color it'd be great if we all could do that right all navigate through without having to to deal with that you know and i i think a lot of people you, you mentioned that binary like i'm racist or i'm not um I had an example uh, not too long ago uh, with sexism and I had a view and I had a question I was going to ask that my wife called me out on it before I did. We were hiring and had uh, candidates that were men and women. And uh, one question I had for my wife, well, can she do it? She just had a couple babies. And is that going to interfere? And she goes, would you ask the guy that question? And I went, no. I wouldn't ask him that question. And she goes, okay, well, should you ask that question or is it her responsibility to do her job? And I was like, damn it. All right. There's something still there. And so I give that as an example of like, it doesn't necessarily have to, I didn't feel like I'm an awful person and I'm a sexist and uh, you know, but I did see like, holy crap, there was something there that I was going to ask that question and it was irrelevant and I wouldn't have asked it of her male counterpart who was interviewing. So that that is, I don't know, it's just something like it doesn't, for the, for the people who may encounter those views in themselves, those things in themselves, it can be a great experience of learning of something you thought and changing is, is, is fantastic. It doesn't have to be the, you know, I, I, I don't know, just to people explore yourself. It's okay. <laughs> we all we all can change. Yeah. Well, and, and but here's the thing, you know, there's some folks who say, I don't need to change. I'm good exactly as I am. And there's nothing that you're going to say that's going to, you know, that's going to change me. Right. So you know, the question is, okay, so to what extent do you feel that you really want to make a contribution in this world and be able to engage folks and, and, uh, and, and, and support everyone? And, and I think that, you know, in, in this particular space, what you're talking about is a different level of presence, than, than what we have uh, had most recently. And as we move more and more towards a technologically savvy organization, you know, country and, and existence period, um, technology has really pulled us away from, uh, from one another with respect to the way that we socialize, right? And the way that we engage, we have access to more information. We can do a lot mm -hmm. more connect and, and, and organize and bring folks together, but technology it creates a distraction that causes us to only kind of hit and miss and engage on the surface level with one another. So us being fully present and showing up and being mindful, if you will, of the experiences that people are having, us being able to take time Right. Take time to just listen and be with one another and, and, and lend the proper um, 
attention to the experiences that we are having so that we can figure out how to live in this world together, not tolerate one another, but really celebrate, right? Then that is what's going to make make the greatest difference, I, I think, for us as, as we look at moving forward. The younger generations, I have to give it to them hands down, Jamie, they don't have the issues that we have. They don't have, uh, you know, the recent struggles with the civil rights and, and some of the mindsets that are still around as a result of that. You know, they've come into the world and, mm-hmm. and, and they're much more open, if you will, to embracing differences and figuring out how they can maximize those differences and come up with things. And they are wondering what's wrong with the rest of us. Right. When we look at the millennials and Gen Z, many of them have been at the forefront of these Black Lives Matter movements. They've been out here in the streets protesting. They've been organizing and they are over this. They are done with it. And it reminds me of the Freedom Riders, you know, back during the civil rights movement. And, you know, it was students in SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. They led us through all of that because they did not have the same hangups and the fears, if you will, that we ultimately develop as we continue to be subjected to the system and silence and not able to speak up or speak out about it. These young people are fierce and I applaud them. I celebrate them for that. And and I am so happy that they are taking us in a different direction when it comes to how we approach this. But we still have enough people in our organizations, especially those who are in leadership roles that are struggling with this issue to where we cannot stop. We have to continue to press forward and we have to continue to work towards making things better. Yeah. And my brother-in-law is black and he listened to my sister and I, two white people talking about this subject and just kind of passing through said, why why are you guys even getting upset? We've got to wait till that generation dies off for change to happen anyway. And it was so sad to me to, to just let that sink in of it's so hard for people to change that they would, that that's the react, that is part of the reality of this new generation coming up is going to change. And that's, that's what we're waiting for. And, and it's such a, yeah. Anyway, that was really hard, uh, hard to hear. I'm glad there are, that the next generation is courageous and fearless and, and talking about this. And well, we still have, um, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery happening. We cannot afford to wait for any generation to die off because we have folks who are in leadership positions who are making decisions that are crucial to the livelihood and and, and the life, the longevity, if you will, of individuals in our community. When I think about what happened here at home in Louisville, Kentucky with Breonna Taylor, that could have been me. You know, she was at home in her bed watching movies with her fiance and and just relaxing after a long day of being out. And the reality is that that could have been me. It could have been someone that I love. It could have been my husband or my son who was out for a jog in our neighborhood in uh, the area of town that we live in and, uh, you know, who could have been gunned down and mistaken. It could be someone in in my family who was pulled over by the police. And as as, as Black parents, we had to when we were teaching our son to drive. We had to have that wonderful celebration of the fact that he was in a place to where he's got a permit and he's able to learn how to drive. We all remember that milestone, right? Because getting your license meant freedom. It meant freedom from your parents and you could hang out with your friends and go and do whatever Mm -hmm. you want to do. But when you're the parent of a black child, you have to quickly make sure they understand what it means and how to turn on the turn signal and what the road signs mean and what have you. But then you also have to immediately go to that conversation of what to do, not if, but when you are pulled over by the police. What to do, not if, but when 
the police approach you because it can be the difference between life and death for our children. It's never fun to have to have that conversation and it can quickly turn what should be a celebratory milestone into a somber occasion. And, you know, I watched as our Asian brothers and Asian American brothers and sisters were being attacked in the streets as a result of rhetoric that was being put out there about COVID. I saw so many of them having to sit down and have the same conversations with their children, telling them that they had to watch over their shoulder and be safe, be careful when they were out walking up and down the streets. We've got a, a population in this country that thinks it is OK. It is their right and their privilege to determine who gets to live. and for them to determine who matters. And that is extremely problematic. And that is something that we all have to work to address and deal with. And to sit back and say nothing is to be complicit. And I will say that again, to sit back and say nothing is to be complicit. We have come to a place and a space and time where all of us have a voice and we all have to use it to be able to carry forth influence and change in whatever circles we are able to impact. Thank you so much. Um, I have a couple more questions about the logistics of DEI and I don't know how to segue from there to from here to there, so I'm just gonna I'm gonna do it. Um, one of the, we talked about leadership teams representation. If a CEO looks and the leaders in his organization, uh, there's no diversity in there at all. What does uh, an organization like yours recommend? Is that a when you say shakeup, uh, are you recommending? Letting some people go, creating some opportunity. Is it uh, something that happens over time? You know, uh, you know, now we're going to look at our hiring process. We're going to look at all these other processes to make sure that over time this changes. Um, what is the what's the step for an organization like that? That's a great question, Jamie. And, and, you know, one of the things that I typically consult with our clients and tell them is, listen, you cannot look at this in a vacuum. There are some folks out there who think, well, OK, if I get a black person on my leadership team, everything will be OK. We can say we're diverse and we've done it. We can check off a box. If we get someone to come in and do training for our organization, we can check off a box and say that we're committed to diversity. Um, it's, it's important that when you think about this, that you ask yourself the hard question, who are we? Who are we as an organization and where do we have opportunities to make a commitment to this? It's critical for you to define what diversity is for your organization, because as I mentioned before, you know, Garden Schwartz and Rowe, they're diversity practitioners who developed what we call the dimensions of diversity back in the 90s. And it covers several attributes of diversity. So when you look at the spectrum, if you will, of diversity, diversity is about the differences that we have that create our makeup as individuals. So it's everything from race, age, gender, religion, our personality, um, our demographics, where we come from, those things that make up who we are and how we've shaped our lives. It's, it's, it's those things that make up who we are within organizations, how we engage one another across levels of seniority, titles, positions, etc. It's so much more than just race, but race is a critical component of it. But again, it's so much more than just race. So if you look at your organization, if you have more than one person there, you could very easily make the point, hey, we've got diversity. Why? Because no two people are alike. But the question is, to what extent do you really want to commit to having a diverse organization and across what attributes? Is it important 
for you to have racial diversity? Is it important for you to have diversity of genders? Is it important for you to have diversity of sexual orientation, identity, religions, and things of that nature? It's critical for organizations to really ask themselves the question of how do they define diversity for their organizations and who is there? Who is already there that makes up the diversity of your organization? Now, if you recognize that there's an opportunity for you to increase racial diversity, then do I suggest that, do I propose that you go out and hire uh, Black people right away or other people uh, from other communities of color? Absolutely not. What I propose you do <laughs> is start doing the work of preparing your culture and your workforce for embracing any individuals of color who begin to come into your organization. Because the worst thing that you can do is get to a place to where you hire people right away, they come into the organization and they're not received, they're not embraced, they're not supported in the way that you have promised them you would when they were going through their processes. So every culture, if you've never had people of color in your culture, then it's time for you to start having those conversations and asking the question, why? Why are we a mostly white organization? Is it because somewhere along the lines, we feel that this is the most valuable way for us to work together? Do we have our own issues and concerns or blind spots around the importance, the benefit of racial diversity? And again, I say, have those conversations, have, have them honestly and have them courageously so you understand what needs to happen in order for you to prepare for advancing racial diversity within your organization or um, and, and moving forward in whatever other way you might want to. So once you have those conversations and, and you get to a place to where everyone in the organization is clear on the culture change, the culture shift that's going to come, then you have to look at what's happening around your sourcing. How are you going about making folks aware of what's happening, uh, what opportunities, if you will, are available within your organization? Um, what types of folks do you need to bring in? What roles are you looking to fulfill? Where do you see having the benefit of diverse perspective helping you as an organization? And what type of perspective do you need? So when you start looking at finding folks to come into your organization, uh, again, then you have to have a conversation with HR on how does this process need to go as, as we're looking at diversifying our leadership, if you will. What type of candidates do we need? How many candidates are we looking at making sure are available for us to even uh, consider through the selection process? And then what roles will they filter into and how will we support them as they get acclimated with the company? So there's a lot that goes into this. It's, it's never the type of thing to where you can come up with an overnight fix, if you will. Um, and, and that's where a lot of companies fall behind because they get frustrated with the amount of time and effort that has to go into preparing mm -hmm. to ultimately uh, strategize and implement a plan around what needs to happen. So I tell folks all the time, this is a marathon, it's not a sprint. And a lot of times, especially in today's day and age, we want everything to happen lightning fast. There are folks right now who are involved in a number of initiatives where they're trying to diversify their leadership teams, but they're taking time to ask those hard questions of why have we not had diversity in these positions before? And if we bring someone on board, what contributions are we looking for them to make? And how are we looking to contribute to their success? What are we willing to give up, if you will? so that they can be successful in this organization. And when you ask the question of what are people willing to give up, that's usually when you find out just how committed they are. Yeah, and I, I am seeing some missteps that I've made in that 
thinking this is a project that can be managed to completion and is and we can we can add checklists and get things done and then we are DEI compliant and things will be great and that's is that sort of the biggest mistake that leaders can make is this is just like any other project let's carve it up into its little parts and solve each part and move forward it sounds like there's a whole lot more to it a lot and a lot of soul searching too as an organization that just here's a project we can complete Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of folks don't want to move forward with this, right? Because there's a lot of soul searching and and, um, honest conversation you have to have with yourself as a leader. But then also uh, understanding that, yes, you're right. This is not a project to be managed. It's not something to check off. Now, typically when we had, uh, well, we still have them, you know, federal regulations that require uh, from a compliance standpoint for employers to act in certain ways when it comes to engaging. Uh, communities of color, diverse individuals in the workplace. You know, we have protections for people based on race, color, religion, or or national origin, disability even, right, et cetera. Um, This is something that companies have to do because they recognize that it is a moral and an economic imperative. You cannot continue to compete in what has become an increasingly global society if you, when it comes to trying to find talent or trying to make sure that you're profiting off of whatever product or service you offer if you do not understand that there is a need for us to recognize the the, the considerable amount of diversity that we have out here in the consumer base as well as in the workforce. You, we will not stay relevant when it comes to trying to find top talent because this is something that future generations and even generations that are there in the workplace now beyond some of the uh, more traditional generations are prioritizing and people are looking as there's this shift, if you will, in terms of what the workers and talent want, they want to work for companies who are in alignment with that have values that are in alignment with their personal values. It goes back to what I was saying earlier about that personal bottom line. You know, we're getting to a point in, in, in our time now to where folks don't see a separation between work and home life, right? Who they are at home is who they want to be able to show up as at work and vice mm-hmm. versa, where it used to be in previous generations and the boomers and the silent generations that they understood work was a means to a means to an end, never the two shall meet, right? Well, that started changing with Gen X when we came into the workplace. We recognized the importance of being able to have some separation, but along with many Gen Xers and generations coming behind, it was important to start seeing yourself as one individual who can make a contribution in whatever space you're in. So it's important for companies to be able to recognize that this isn't just about compliance anymore. It's the right thing to do. It's also the economic thing to do. And if you want to be a good corporate citizen, wherever you are, that has a commitment to corporate social responsibility, and you want the communities that you serve to be loyal, whether it's loyal employees or loyal patrons, then you have to start positioning yourself to hear and prioritize their concerns and their issues. So this all works together. It's not some separate thing that you just kind of do because someone told you you should. It, It makes good business sense as well as good human sense. Michelle, thank you so much. I know we had a little issue with the delay, but I think we worked through it. I got through about half my questions, so I would love to have you back so we can go through all the other stuff that you and I talked about talking about. Um, Now, if someone is interested in learning more uh, about you, 
uh, and uh, their initiatives and need help, um, what's the best way for them to follow you or contact you? Absolutely, Jamie. Thank you for that question. They can connect with uh, us through our website. It's michelleshelton.com. That's Michelle with one L, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Shelton, S-H-E-L-T-O-N.com. Outstanding. I will include that in the show notes. Michelle, thank you so much. I so appreciate your perspective, your willingness to come and talk about something that I can only imagine how exasperating it can be to have to talk about this. Uh, I really appreciate everything that you said. And, and uh, uh, I think our, our listeners will really find this valuable. Um, and I can't wait to have you on again to, to continue our discussion. Uh, again, thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate you. Absolutely, Jamie. It's my pleasure. Again, thank you so much for being willing to step into this space. There are a million other topics you could have discussed on your podcast, but to be able to provide this platform for us to have what is the most relevant and most critical conversation, especially during these times, you know, my hat just goes off to you and I wish you nothing but complete continued success. And I look forward to having that next conversation. Awesome. So do I. Thank you. Well, first off, Michelle, thank you so much for your candor uh, and for all the information you provided and for this conversation. As with everyone, even when we're talking about difficult things that challenge me and challenge my perspective, uh, I still thoroughly enjoy uh, every opportunity we, we get to chat. So much here, listeners. So much here for us to talk about. I hope you're left with a different perspective. Maybe you've never heard this before. Maybe you have said, why do we even need this stuff? I'm hoping that you've got a different perspective today to open you up to, to really why this is important, both from a, a humanity perspective, but also an economic perspective. From a humanity perspective, if you're a business owner listening to this, uh, and frankly, anyone in this, in this space, that is listening to this, you have a certain amount of influence within your group. It's important to know what that power brings and, and what you can do to make the lives of others uh, better. And here is a community uh, made up of many different communities that need allies. So the first step is to listen and to be able to uh, get to some understanding. So today I hope you were able, this provided you a, 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 the ability to, to listen to another perspective that maybe you're not getting and to, to think about what you can do uh, better when it comes to the discussion and the activity of uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It's something that you know, we're gonna bring up from time to time because those are important issues. Why is it important to affiliate marketing? It's important to everything. So why isn't it important to affiliate marketing? Why aren't we talking about this within our community? So Michelle, again, thank you so much. And if you want to reach out to Michelle, if you want to continue this conversation with her directly, or your organization wants to see how their DEI initiatives uh, measure up and what else they could be doing, you can get to Michelle. You can find her at michellesheltoncom And on our description page, we're going to have links to her LinkedIn and a bunch of other ways to get a hold of her as well. Now I want to hear from you. What did you get out of this? What do you think about the topics discussed? Now I know uh, we had a little trouble in the recording. There was a little bit of a delay. Hopefully our amazing editor made big shout out to Shane. Thank you so much for continuing uh, to edit these podcasts, even though you have moved on in your career. We are so proud of you, Shane, and I'm so thankful you're here helping us continue to do this. 
but if you need any more help, make sure you reach out to, uh, to Michelle. Uh, we'll have that all in the show notes. And please, if you found value in this discussion today, please share this with your friends, share this on Facebook. If someone needs to listen to this, send it on over to them. And we would love it if you could take some time and give us a good rating on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, all those places. Uh, that helps us build our listenership as well. And if you find that there's other topics similar to this or other individuals you'd like me to interview on this podcast, please just email me or have them email me at gethelp at jbcommerce.com.